You ever come into a movie a little bit late and you have to try to figure out what's happened so far? You feel a little bit left out and finally you get brave and you lean over to the person next to you and say, what's happened so far? And everybody around you groans because you know that there's going to be a 15-minute explanation uh, given. And you feel a little bit like you don't know what's going on, like everyone around you has information you desperately need. And I thought about that because those of you joining us tonight as our guests, first of all, we're very thankful for you, thankful to have you here. But unbeknownst to you, you're coming in in the middle of a preaching series that we started a couple of weeks ago. So let me be that person to get you caught up on where we are so far. At Christmas time as children, we naturally were focused on getting things for Christmas. Remember, first, my anxiety level started to go up every day until Christmas Day. And hopefully, though, as we got older, we began to realize that we need to think more about giving and a little bit less about getting and what we're receiving. But in the Church of Jesus Christ, it can be possible to continue to think like a child, to think like a little kid, to view the local church as something that is here for me, for my gifting, to entitle me, to make me happy, to do things for me. But as we've seen in our church in the last couple of weeks, Ephesians chapter 5 says that the church of Jesus Christ is a bride that is presented pure and spotless for Christ. That the church is a gift for Christ, not so much a gift for us. And so in this Christmas season, in the spirit of giving and thinking about the church of Jesus Christ, which is his purchased possession, his prized possession, we belong to him We've set out to think about the church, not as a gift to us so much, but as our gift to Jesus. And we've been using the very first church of Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts 1 through 12, as our model to help us examine some different elements of giving this gift to Jesus Christ, that which he desires us to be. We've already seen in the last couple of weeks that Christ desires a well-ordered church and a to look at briefly in our gift to Jesus This includes being a praying church, a praying church. Now, at this moment, some of you are saying, what does this have to do with Christmas? And it is fair for you to ask that question and maybe even to say, I came to a Christmas Eve service expecting to hear something Christmassy. I want shepherds, wise men, jingle bells, bring it on. This is what we're here for. I promise I will connect the dots with you before we're done tonight. This is a Christmas message. Make no mistake. Now, I'm going to be hop-skipping around in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. It's probably just easier for you to listen rather than trying to follow in your Bible. But very simply, what I want to do is just have us drop in on a few scenes in the first chapters in Acts in the the very difficult. These times inspire me, and hopefully they'll inspire you to saturate not only your life, but your local church, wherever that is, in prayer. Now, the first occasion we'll just call prayer in waiting, prayer in waiting and we're going to kind of parachute in here to the middle of the city of Jerusalem and we would be going to a large house right in the middle of the city it's probably owned by a follower of Christ and we would ascend the stairway only unlike your house the stairway isn't inside it would be on the outside and you would ascend these steps on the outside of the house and you would come to a door and you would open the door and there's there's a room upstairs that's literally the size of the entire house And most popular gathered, this is where you had guests, and these upper rooms could be very, very big. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. He'd promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to indwell all who would have faith in him, and that 
the, the, the people of God who had been following him while he was on earth, they were to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the apostles and other followers of Christ, they are now gathered together to wait and they use this upper room, probably used it in the evening. We know what they did in the daytime. Acts one fourteen says that they were devoting themselves to prayer, devoting themselves together in prayer. What they did in the daytime, according to Luke 24, was to go to the temple to pray. And then in the evening, they would go to this upper room and they would gather together. And what is it they're praying for? Well, there's only really one possibility. The Lord Jesus said, go back to the city and wait for me until I send the Holy Spirit. So they have precisely one prayer request, Lord Jesus, send the Holy Spirit. They would now, at the coming of the Spirit, be responsible for the spread of the gospel to the entire world after the coming birth of the church. So they prayed while they waited. What a great thing to do while waiting. Well, let's peek in on a, on a second room. This is an unidentified place, but a, a large place, a large enough place for a sizable number to get praying for leaders. The Holy Spirit has now come. In Acts chapter 2, the church has been birthed and is growing at an astronomical rate. The members of the church of Jerusalem are now gathered together. But in this case, they're gathered for a very specific occasion. They're not waiting anymore. Now they have, they have something else in their, in their view. The apostles, Peter and John, have been arrested they had healed a lame man in the temple courtyard and their, their bold preaching of Christ and the gospel as a result of this got too much attention and so they've been arrested by the Jewish authorities that were antagonistic toward Christ. And even while the church was gathered and praying together, these two men, Peter and John, were standing before the Jerusalem, or, uh, Peter and John presenting their case before them and the church praying and this is happening at the same time. The, the Jerusalem council, these same men who crucified Jesus, they commanded Peter and John. They said that you are not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John basically said, that's not yours to tell us to do. We will preach Christ because God has commanded us to. And when they were released, they immediately went to the gathered church and they reported what had happened And what was the natural response of the people of God? It was to continue in prayer. They instinctively desired to connect with God. They they didn't say, "Let's, let's pop a bottle of champagne. Let's go out to eat. They said, we need to pray to communicate with God. And Acts chapter four, beginning in verse 24, records that they prayed many things, theologically rich and deep things. They worshiped God. They acknowledged that he is sovereign, that he's in control of everything. They marveled in prayer that Psalm 2 was being fulfilled in its prediction that the evil leaders of the world would set themselves against Messiah. And they, they marveled, against the, marveled at this. They, they acknowledged in their prayer that the death of Christ happened at the hands of wicked men and yet in the predestined plan of God. And then they prayed for their church leaders. They said, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And in fact, so powerful and earnest were their prayers that the Lord Jesus, in answering these prayers, did something so gracious and kind to this little infantile church, this little baby church, newborn church. The Lord acknowledged their prayers. Verse 31 of chapter 4 says, When they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken 
Wouldn't you love that to pray something and have the ground shake and say, thank you, Lord. I'm glad you got that message. That's what the Lord did for them. They prayed for their leaders. And speaking of praying for leaders, we could visit another gathering, a very large gathering of the church in Acts chapter six. And we could call this occasion of prayer, prayer for servants, prayer for servants. Now, according to Jewish law, it was the responsibility of the family to take care of their parents, to take care of widows. This was part of honoring your father and honoring your mother. And that was expected and it was right and it was good. But if a widow had come to faith in Christ, particularly in Jerusalem in the last couple of months, her family in all likelihood would consider that she had completely abandoned the faith, the traditional family faith of Judaism. And what they didn't understand was that Christianity is not abandoning Judaism. Christianity is the completion and the consummation of Judaism, which has always looked forward to a Messiah. Christians just worship Messiah because he's come. And so now these these widows have been essentially thrown out of their families and they needed practical help. But the church had a little problem. The church was comprised of two different groups of believing Jews. You had the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The, The Hellenists were Jews from outside of Jerusalem who had been essentially raised in a new culture. They would be like second or third generation immigrants. That would be the culture we would sort of equate them with. Then you had the Hebrews. Those are the Jews still raised in the very traditional Jewish home. And by some oversight, the Hellenist widows were all being neglected. They weren't being cared for. And and so the 12 apostles, they they gathered the whole church together and said, we've got to solve this problem. They they reminded the church of what their priorities as the teachers of the church were to be. Their priorities were to be prayer and the word of God, not going around handing out meals to widows. And so they commanded that the church identify seven godly men to take over the distribution of help to the widows. The apostles approved of these men. And now before I tell you what they did next, since I'm preaching on prayer, you can probably figure it out. But before I tell you what they did next, I want to remind you of something. This is such an important dynamic. These men, these chosen men, would be what Acts chapter 6 calls essentially table servants, table servers. They would be distributing food, a very lowly, lowly task. They didn't have meals on wheels. They just did dinners for sinners, apparently, was what they had there. If it was in the daytime, it would be lunches for bunches. You can make up your own names. But in other words, the table waiters, they were just in charge of distributing food. That's what they did. It was a lowly role of just being a servant. And yet, what did the apostles do? The people set these seven men before the apostles and the apostles, quote, prayed and laid their hands on them. It it means that they commissioned them before God to this highest calling of being table servers, of being servants in the church. And what I learned from that is that there was no occasion too small for prayer in the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Small occasions, but now we leave a small occasion and we go to a completely different scene, not a scene of tranquil church unity or of loving one another, but a scene of the high cost of following Christ. We'll call this scene prayer in death. Prayer in death. And we go now to the chambers of the high priest in the Jerusalem council. One of these seven men chosen by the church to be a table server was also 
faithful to proclaim the gospel with boldness at every opportunity. In fact, Acts chapter 6 verse 10 says that the Spirit of God enabled him to withstand every argument of the leaders of Jerusalem and they were frustrated that they couldn't overwhelm him with their intellect. He continued to fight with Scripture and to proclaim Christ. And this man, of course, was Stephen. And Stephen was then arrested for his proclamation of the gospel. He was brought before the high priest, brought before the Jerusalem council, and he was asked to give a defense of himself. In other words, they were, in their minds, being gracious. We, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to speak. And probably what they expected was an apology or kind of a, well, I, I, I'm sorry I was doing this. And, but Stephen didn't do that. Instead, he preached a scathing, fiery, white-hot sermon in condemnation of these men, the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts, 52 verses. And he ends this way. Listen to his kind, compassionate heart. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. While the council was enraged, they took Stephen outside the city to stone him to death. Stones beating off his body, pelting his head and beginning to crush his skull. And as he was in the midst of this hailstorm of stones, what was his final thought? It was to pray. It was to pray. Acts seven fifty nine and 60 says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And of course, one man gleefully overseeing this murder was a young man named Saul, the head persecutor of the Christians on behalf of the Jewish leaders. And yet, Saul would be brought to faith in Christ and as the apostle Paul be the answer to Stephen's prayer for mercy on his executioners. And now the church in Jerusalem would be cast into great persecution, great suffering, And so we'll join one more scene in the life of the church and we'll just call this prayer in crisis. Prayer in crisis. This scene occurs in two places at once. It occurs at a Jerusalem prison in the middle of the city and at a large and spacious home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, in whose home many in the church were meeting. Another tragedy would soon befall the church in Acts chapter 12. James, the brother of John, was arrested And he was executed by sword. He became the first apostle to lose his life for the faith. And right after James was executed, Peter was arrested, really the head apostle. And the intent was to execute him, but the feast of Passover was coming up, so they were going to wait until after Passover. But what was the church doing? Knowing that James had been murdered, had been executed wrongly, and that Peter was in prison and in all likelihood going to meet the same fate. The church still shocked and grieving the loss of James and the imprisonment of Peter. Acts 12.5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter is in chains in the middle of Jerusalem in a prison, and the church is gathered in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and they're praying all at the same time. And oh, how God answered that prayer. Peter was asleep, apparently quite peaceful in the Lord being in jail. 
And between him, he's between two soldiers. He's bound by two chains. There are sentries guarding the, the, the prison. And suddenly an angel appears to Peter. And he brings heavenly light with him to this darkened cell. And Acts twelve seven says he struck Peter on the side and woke him. Apparently Peter slept really deeply, even when he's in prison. And the angel told him to get up. The chains fell off of him. And Peter got dressed quickly. And at the angel's instruction, they walked past the guards, past the sentry. They got to the iron gate that opened to the streets of Jerusalem. And the, and the gate opened by itself and they walked out. Now there's two things that are really striking about this. First of all, Peter thought the whole thing was some sort of dream or vision. Acts 12, 11 says that Peter came to himself. It's a phrase that means he came to his senses. Even at this moment, they were praying. And while they were praying for Peter, Peter came knocking on the door of the courtyard gate in the large house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, in the house in which they were praying. And here's the second striking thing that happened. The, the servant girl, her name was Rhoda, she recognized Peter's voice on the other side of this door to the gate. And she was so excited that she just left him there. And she went running to everyone inside and said, Peter's here. And I'm sure they said, well, where is he? And they didn't believe her at first. And eventually she said, that's right, where is he? Oh, he's at the door. Peter was still knocking and she finally let him in. The church submitted to the sovereignty of God in a plan in which did not spare James, but did spare Peter. And the church prayed all along. What a variety of times to pray. Praying and waiting, praying for leaders, praying for servants, praying in death, praying in crisis. The church prayed at every occasion possible. This was a praying church. And speaking of which, this coming Sunday evening on December 30th in our church, we're having a prayer service. And this is, this is vital to the life of the church. Uh, this is the electricity that lights the lamp of, of the church's mission on earth. So don't let my preaching be in vain. Be here. Commit to be here to pray together next Sunday evening. Now, you might be saying, I want to get my money's worth. I want to hear a Christmas sermon. I haven't heard a single jingle bell no shepherds, not a wise men to be seen. I want something Christmassy. The most famous Christmas hymn of all time, Silent Night, has a line that says, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Have you ever wondered, Lord of what? King of what? Well, I want you to picture with me the typical nativity scene. You can even picture the one you get at Walmart that has two light bulbs in it and you stick in your front yard. That's fine. And we look at the nativity scene and you can list all the requisite parts. You have the camels and you have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and maybe a star. And, and if you pay the extra money, you have other animals there too. And we say, this is the meaning of Christmas. And we pat ourselves on the back and say, I avoided Santa Claus and all of that, but I've got the meaning of Christmas down here in my front yard. But did you know that a true nativity scene would be far more comprehensive and, and frankly impossible to pull off? But assume for the sake of argument that you hit the lottery and you have a really, really big front yard. You would move from that typical scene to the next scene and you would look at the next scene the child Jesus perfectly obeying his parents demonstrating his sinless nature as the son of God so that he could exchange his perfect life for your sinful life before God 
you would move to the next scene and you would see the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism as he inaugurates his ministry. And then you would come to scene after scene after scene by rivers and and on mountaintops and in villages and on dusty roads of Jesus preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, just preaching endlessly to anyone who would listen. You would come to scene after scene of Jesus healing the sick and feeding tens of thousands of people miraculously, of casting out demons, of raising the dead. You would come to scene after scene after scene of Jesus boldly confronting the Jewish leaders who rejected him as Messiah as he proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, equal with God. And he would come to one scene. It would be quiet because it would be an introspective scene with Jesus alone and he's looking in a particular direction. The quiet moment recorded in Luke 9, 51 When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then one scene after another in quick succession, you have the Last Supper, his betrayal and arrest. The blood would start flowing as Jesus was was tortured, as he was beaten, as he was flogged, as his beard was pulled out from his face, as he was beaten beyond human recognition. And then you come to the gruesome scene of the cross just outside the walls of Jerusalem, in which Jesus is lifted up and blood streaming down his head and down his face and his arms and his legs from the crown of thorns, his body in agony from the nails in his wrists, the nail in his, in his feet as he bears the weight of sin and the wrath of God against sin on behalf of all who would believe in him. And then you would come to the next scene, but there's, there's no light you could, you could shine all the flashlights you want on it. You could, you could put spotlights on it, but there's no light. It's like the light just gets swallowed up into this darkness because this scene is three hours of darkness in the land when the Lord Jesus Christ is receiving in his body and in his soul and in his spirit the wrath of God Almighty being poured onto him instead of onto you in a darkness that none could penetrate. But then you go to the next scene and there's nothing but light because three days later, the Son of God is raised from the dead which corroborates and and confirms that God the Father has accepted as full payment the life of Christ for sin. And you would see the scenes of Jesus meeting with his disciples and then meeting with over 500 believers on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, teaching them for 40 more days about the coming kingdom and telling them that he would soon depart And then you would see the scene of Jesus ascending into heaven in the sight of his apostles. And two angels coming and telling these apostles, why why are you looking up into the sky? Jesus is coming back exactly the way he went. He will return. And we would come to a scene right now that's almost indescribable, the, the, the role that Jesus is playing right now, even as I speak. The role that he is playing is that he is advocating for the church and he is building his church. Generation after generation after generation, gathering together into heaven with the death of every new generation of believers. We have the church being built and built and built with the majority of the church of Jesus Christ now in heaven. The book of Revelation says that each believer collected into heaven receives a white robe, quote, of fine linen, white and pure, to become the armies of heaven. And in the meantime, the kingdom citizens, the church of Jesus Christ, 
we're here still doing the bidding of our coming king. And we are to do as he commanded multiple times while he was on earth, and that is to pray, to show a reliance on him, a reliance on God in all things as the bride of Christ, the church advancing forward generation after generation after generation, countless millions being brought to faith and gathered in heaven. And we are praying as he taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next thing? Your kingdom come. And someday that prayer will be answered and we move to another scene in an accurate nativity scene. And this is a scene in heaven. Revelation 19 pictures Christ getting ready to come back and take the world that is rightfully his. And here's the scene we see now. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, that's us, were following him on white horses, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress to the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. We sing Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Lord of what? The whole world. King of what? All of his citizens. He came the first time to a manger. He's coming the second time to a throne. Because he is the Lord, he is the king. So you see, the praying church fits right into the plan of God. Right exactly in the perfect place. Christ came to die for the sins of all who would believe and to gather kingdom citizens together for his future reign on earth. The only question I have is, are you one of his citizens? Are you one of his citizens? Because only kingdom citizens called in the book of Acts for the very first time Christians can truly say Merry Christmas. Because that Christmas will extend into Christ's coming kingdom. So when we say this evening, Merry Christmas, we're not talking about just your tomorrow. Our Merry Christmas is for all of your tomorrows. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the life, the death, the ministry, the ascension, the current ministry, the coming reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And our celebration at Christmas is really just a a beginning point. Because from the wooden manger, he would go to a wooden cross. And without that cross, we are without hope. For it is by the cross of Christ that we have hope that you would pour your wrath, which is rightfully due to us, on Christ instead. And we do give you thanks this evening for your offer of a substitute sacrifice so that rather than us receiving the wages of sin, which is death, Christ received them in his own body on our behalf such that we could then be made righteous before you. We thank you and praise you this Christmas season for our Lord, our King, 
Jesus Christ. Amen.